Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, here we go again. Students in Ontario will be learning from behind a screen when they return from spring break. The question is, are schools actually safe? A French study shows that countries that took an aggressive zero-COVID approach fared much better than others in both health and economic measures. Is it too late for Canada to go down that road? The federal liberals have voted to shut down a defense committee probe into allegations of high-level sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. Are the liberals serious about actually fixing this problem? And Thane Rosenbaum, CBS Radio legal analyst, joins us with an update on the Derek Chauvin trial. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The announcement yesterday caught an awful lot of people off guard about what's going to be happening with the schools here in Ontario, especially in light of the fact that uh, Stephen Lecce, the education minister, sent a letter out on Sunday uh, to parents, which read in part, during the provincial emergency break and the provincial stay-at-home order, all publicly funded and private elementary and secondary schools will remain open for in-person learning with strict health and safety measures in place. So, that was Sunday. Less than 24 hours later, he's standing beside the Premier saying, no, but, uh, well, this is how the minister tried to rationalize it. The decision point we've made today is to continue remote learning based on the medical advice that came to us, that it actually would be better um, to help reduce the community transmission, to help keep these school settings safe by keeping them home, learning, but keeping them home. Uh, okay, uh, what changed in the... 24 hours or so between the time the letter was sent out and between the minister standing there beside the prime, the premier saying what's going on. And what are the implications of this? I want to bring Harvey Bischoff into the conversation. Harvey, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, as always, Harvey, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. How do you rationalize and how do you deal with the mixed messaging here? I don't know how to rationalize it. What's you know what's evident to me is that this minister has staked his political ambitions on this fiction that schools are demonstrably safe, and wouldn't move off that position. Didn't care you know whom he risked in order to maintain that position because that's that's you know where where his ambitions lie. I don't know how else to explain that um, you know really disorienting flip flop. Well, it's not the first time this has happened. Uh, you and I had this discussion just around Christmas time, as you may recall, uh, when the minister was on my show and simply said, look, uh, there's not going to be any extension of the Christmas break. The kids are going to go back to safe, safest place while there's the classroom. And 24 hours later, he says, no, no, we're extending the break. Uh, where are they getting their advice from? I, I, I'm, I'm really wondering. I mean, you know, I... I'm, I'm perplexed, and, and I don't have any skin in the game here. My kids are long past the elementary and high school and, and system here, so this is not going to have an impact on me, but there are thousands and thousands of other parents that are basically asking me. I got emails about this this morning. What's going on? You know, I, I think, I, I, like, I'm not sure that the, that the fault lies with the advice they're getting. I've seen the advice they've gotten from, from organizations like Sick Kids, for example, who worked with other uh, medical experts and put out a document all the way back in July, that said these are the things we should do to keep schools safe. Limit the number of students in class to a max of 15. Put in ventilation standards. Tr uh, improve transportation standards. All the way back in the summer, they were telling this minister, create a robust asymptomatic testing program so that we can identify what's really going on in schools. And he simply refused to do so. So I'm not sure it's the quality of the advice. <clears throat> Pardon me, I think it's the quality of the decision-making. Well, uh, I mean, you know, the premier yesterday was bemoaning the fact he says, walk a mile in my shoes. I have to stay up and, and have meetings till midnight every night. Uh, are, 
I guess he's hard done by by this whole pandemic. As you juxtapose that with the number of people that are in ICUs right now, uh, I'm not so sure he's having such a rough time of it. But it's it's the mixed messaging, I guess, that's really giving people a problem here. And they can't seem to make a decision here, Harvey, as to whether or not schools are safe or they're not safe and kids are better off there or they're not better off there. Uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, they're taking advice like the Sick Kids report that was done months ago now and, and doing, as, as to have just about a other program, doing it in half measure. And, and half measures is what's what has absolutely defined this government. So, you know, I heard somebody describe them the other day as driving down the middle of the highway at night with their lights off. That seems to be, uh, you know, that's that's what it feels like. Um, but they, you know, they haven't managed to get it right by by anybody. Those who want things more open, those who want things more closed down. Uh, instead, they they just they reel from pillar to post and and uh, you know reverse their decisions in 24 hours on something that, you know, I mean, parents and students and educators, they have enough anxiety about what's happening in our system right now. But uh, how can you possibly have any confidence in a government that makes decisions in this fashion? Which, by the way, dovetails into the idea of vaccination in the program and and some of the changes they've made in the last little while. Uh, What Notwithstanding the fact that, that they're talking about the importance of school environments and, and the spread of the virus, and that we just had our medical officer of health from Hamilton, Dr. Richardson, talking about the fact that, yes, this, this is a problem in the schools, whatever the provincial government tells us, we've got the data to show that it is. Why aren't they increasing the vaccination program, for instance, to teachers? I mean, if, if they're at risk because of what's going on in the schools, should they not be a little bit closer to the front of the line than they are right now? The province doesn't seem to think so. It's hard to tell what they think. They, you know, uh, one day last week, uh, the premier says that vaccinating educators on a priority basis is a possibility. The next day, he claims he has a plan. And what we see is there is, in fact, no plan. And I think that defines the way they've conducted themselves since the start of this. They react to to things uh, in the short term, but they don't seem to look out ahead. They don't follow the modeling that uh, the experts have clearly given them. Um, and so with vaccinations, you know, they've now claimed that uh, educators who work with special needs students would be a priority and yet i'm hearing from members in in those places where they're supposed to have access uh you know including in in certain hotspot neighborhoods well they're trying to sign up and they're just not able to so so they liked the announcement they just don't like uh, actually implementing anything Harvey, I've got a sense of deja vu here. I think it was just about 12 months ago you and I had this conversation about whether or not the students and the teachers were actually even going to be able to complete the school year. I mean, I'm looking at the calendar here, and they're saying for the foreseeable future this is what's going to be happening. Uh, all of a sudden we're into May, uh, and, you know, you have to wonder about what's going to happen uh, with exams, if they're even going to be exams, if they're going to complete the school year, are they going to go into the summer. I mean, this is this is the same problem that we had a year ago, uh, and basically because we seem to be doing the same stuff over and over again and a year ago it was you know it was much more understandable the pandemic was brand new we were we were you know trying to learn things as fast as we could about what it meant um, and they took an aggressive position on closing down schools for which i was grateful at the time and we you know muddled our way through uh from there but it's not excusable anymore a year later there should have been a plan in place uh, the modeling told them this was coming, and and yeah, who knows now what the what the rest of the the school year looks like. Um, but you can't you know you can't place your bets based on what they say today because they may change it again tomorrow. So how do teachers got about a minute left here? How how do your your members deal with this? I mean, obviously they've got to pivot once again, and they don't really know if there's going to be another pivot next week or next month or whenever. 
Yeah. So, I mean, look, they've, they've been working enormously hard, uh, education workers, teachers, everybody who works with students, um, and, and in our school system, they've been, they've been going above and beyond to do the very best they can. Virtual learning is for the vast majority of kids, second best to face to face, but, but my members are giving it their all to give them, you know, the best possible experience they can. So they'll deal with that, but it is exhausting. Uh, the last minute changes, um, you know, the, the lack of clarity, the lack of certainty and direction, uh, it's exhausting. And that said, I'm still grateful that uh, the vast majority of them will be uh, protected for the foreseeable future by, by delivering their education virtually. Well, uh, I was going to say we'll talk again when the next change happens. That could be later today for all we know, the way this government's making announcements on this. Harvey, it's a busy day for you. appreciate you taking some time for us. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Harvey Bishop, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. So what do the numbers tell us about this, and, and where should we be going on this? Because there seems to be uh, an awful lot of, well, mixed messaging coming from the government, but where are they getting the advice from, and just what data are they looking at? I want to bring our friend, uh, uh, Professor Chris Bocci, into the conversation. Uh, Chris is a research chair of the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Chris, uh, always a pleasure uh, to get you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. You've been tracking this since day one here and looking at the numbers, and, and numbers don't lie in a situation like this. Uh, and the overriding question is here, are schools safe, and, and if so, why aren't the kids there? And if they're not safe, why isn't the government getting that message? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, from the government about it, of course. And uh, uh, I think the measures that were you know, put in place to reduce the risk in schools were uh, you know, fantastic, and most districts are being really careful about them, uh, and that's really helped a lot. But of course, you can't reduce the risk to zero with any intervention, and that's also mm -hmm. true for schools. Uh, and so, I, I think the you know I, I think the decision to keep schools online uh, um, beyond the spring break is is motivated that by that they're basically trying to, to throw everything they can at the problem, and closing schools is one of the things they haven't tried so far and, and so that and so that's up next is is this the long-term strategy is this the best way to try to curb the, the numbers i mean that you know as we're looking at new cases every day chris it's frightening to see what's happening here in ontario yeah in terms of government interventions it's not ideal and i think part of the problem is that unlike in march 2020 uh at this point people are very fatigued and so even if the government locks down closes down businesses and and shuts schools the virus, that will help, but the virus can still spread through other means, for example, through small social gatherings. Um, so I think that's the main difference between March 2020. Uh, and also we have this more transmissible variant, which uh, which it's 40 or 50% more transmissible. So, you know, closing schools is is one tool in their toolbox. It's one of the few things they have left to do. Um, uh, but, um, it, you know, they're, they're combating this, this kind of tide of, of fatigue and, and people who are less willing to social distance and restrict their small group gatherings than they were back in March. And uh, so that's kind of the main difference between this and, and, and last time. Um, but I think, you know, what it will do is, is it will help. It will slow down the growth in cases uh, and it will reduce the, uh, help reduce the ICU overcapacity. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully it will buy us some, some more time for more people to get vaccinated. 
I'm going to talk uh, a little bit later on in the program about uh, the report that came out of France. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, they talked about the zero COVID approach uh, that a number of countries, including uh, New Zealand and, and, and others, uh, took, which basically said, look, we're going to shut this place down right from the get-go, which they did last year. Uh, and it was, you know, very, very controversial at the time. Uh, but those countries have had no second or third wave. I mean, they did beat the virus, uh, as opposed to the strategy we seem to be taking here in Ontario and many of the other provinces where we tried to, to flatten the curve as opposed to eliminate, uh, the whole situation. Uh, and, but that's then and this is now. I mean, you can't turn the clock back on this. But given the scenario that we're in right now, uh, does another massive lockdown have any effect at all or is it too late for that? Well, if we did a hard lockdown now, uh, then, then yes, it would work. Uh, and that would require not just closing schools and businesses, but also uh, that uh, you know, people respect the rules around gathering sizes. Uh, and um, so, so that absolutely would, would make the cases drop very quickly. Um, but as you said, you know, the, the, the best time to do that is, is early. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it would be effective now. It would have been more effective earlier i think we missed an opportunity back at the end of the second wave where cases were just they were just plummeting like a rock and we should have kept that up for another um three weeks or four weeks uh which would have put us in a much better situation now in terms of starting baseline cases um that we would have you know began the third wave with Uh, but unfortunately you know the governments different governments are different and uh, I, I think maybe a lot of politicians treat this as a consensus process where, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll try to keep these people happy, that people happy. And if you take that approach, then you're guaranteed to be in the situation where, you know, we've got a lot of cases now, no one wants lockdown, but it's the only thing we can do. Um, whereas a government which realizes that, no, I, I have to do a hard lockdown now before cases get out of hand, they get out of lockdown faster with less economic damage. And, and I think that's you know, you know, it's it's uh, that's the opportunity we missed here. Um, uh, but like you said, we can't rewind it now. Uh, but if we did do a hard lockdown now, it, yes, it would work. It's it's like a, a doctor friend of mine told me a couple of weeks ago. He says it's like if you have an infection and and they prescribe antibiotics and said take these right to the end, take these for twelve days. But after five days, you start feeling pretty good. Say I don't need to take them anymore. Boom, it comes back. Uh, because you didn't prescribe it, and and we had an opportunity, and other countries did follow that. Uh, so we're we're playing catch up here right now. And you're right. I, I'm wondering if they actually, you know, what the next step is going to be in a situation like this. Yeah, that's a great analogy, and uh, you know, it's 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 precisely that. It's it's a it's a function of, you know, not being able to look ahead, uh, and only focusing on what's happening right now. Uh, and you know, countries that can look ahead and and. Uh, um, they're, they're the ones who have been successful and, and who have been able to um, get the leaders to, to do those hard lockdowns uh, that they can get out of faster. Uh, it's, I, I guess it's, on a, you know, maybe it's unintuitive to a lot of people who, who haven't thought about pandemics, but, but um, you know, that, that's how they work. Uh, so um, because this is a transmissible infection, it spreads from person to person, and so the best time to stop is when there aren't that many cases. Exactly. Uh, Chris, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time. Stay well. Hey, thanks. You too, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Professor Chris Botch, of course, from the University of Waterloo, uh, who looks at the numbers like this. I, I, I remember having this conversation with him a year ago about what we should be doing at that time, and, and a number of people were suggesting, look, it, it's got to be a hard lockdown, and the government just didn't want to do that. And even in February, as we've talked about on this program, uh, the experts, including the science panel that the Premier uh, you know, had formed, said hard lockdown. 
do this for two, three weeks and knock this thing down before it gets bad. And instead, they started opening up again because they said, oh, the numbers aren't really that bad. And look what happened. Look where we are now. So who's giving the advice and is the government even listening to it? I mean, I know what the premier says, but, you know, we've got some indications here that it's not really being effective. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know that every time we bring this up about the, the strategy or lack of strategy about battling COVID, uh, the premier gets all upset about this and says, you know, let's let's have some positive thoughts and on and on and on it goes. But, you know, we've got to be honest with ourselves here about how we have approached this because there are examples in other parts of the world where they seem to have done a much better job than we're doing, uh, not just in Ontario, but a number of the other provinces across the country. Well, there is a French study that has been released right now that scanned many of the nations about how they dealt with COVID. And essentially, uh, according to the statistics that they have shown us, uh, we got it wrong right from the outset. Uh, the way we were approaching this and the way we should have gone uh, is what's called zero COVID approach. And it has fared much better uh, for both health and economic measures than what we're doing, what many of the other provinces are doing. Joining us to talk about this is Andrew Nikiforik, a best-selling and award-winning author uh, who has uh, uh, studied a number of different things about government relations and AIDS and pandemics over the last little while. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have have you on the program thank you so much for the time today bill uh, this i think validates what a lot of us have been saying for the last little while is this the best possible approach uh some got it right some got it wrong and we don't need to necessarily look at places like new zealand although we're going to talk about that and, and some other places uh that did take a different approach to this but even the atlantic provinces seem to take a much different approach than what we're doing in ontario and some of the other provinces right now uh, this is a conscious decision by by elected officials isn't it that is correct, uh, Bill. Um, you know, there <clears throat> we learned very early on at um, last year um, after the first wave that there are really two ways to respond to well, actually three ways to the to this pandemic. One, you can <clears throat> say, "All right, this this virus represents unprecedented risks and complexity." And we have to eliminate it. And if we don't eliminate it, then um, uh, our health will suffer and our economies will suffer. The second approach was, okay, well, you know, maybe this is not so bad. Maybe what we really need to do is try to control this virus and keep as many people out of the hospital as we possibly can. And then hopefully wait for a vaccine. And that policy is called mitigation. Um, and then the third policy was, uh, okay, uh, we don't really need to take this seriously, and we're not going to do anything at all. And both Mexico and Brazil have basically followed that policy uh, to rather ruinous effect. I mean, Brazil has the highest death rate from COVID of any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the three, the three approaches, do nothing, uh, elimination, which is you go to zero, um, and and it, it is not so much as a, a matter of a lockdown, it's actually a lockout. And actually you say, okay, we don't want this virus circulating in our country. We're going to close our borders. So the countries that have done the very best in controlling COVID were the first actually to, they panicked, they overreacted, and they closed their borders. Countries like Taiwan, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Vietnam, Thailand, South Korea, Singapore, um, largely East, East Asian countries. Um, although, and, and there, you know, this, this French report 
um, which, by the way, comes from a, a very well-established mm-hmm. uh, economic institute based in Paris. The report is written by economists. It's not written by health experts. And then they then they looked at the data. Uh, okay, how did the G10 countries perform? You know, like Belgium, France, Canada, and, uh, United States, Italy, all those countries. Well, they didn't perform very well at all because they all pursued mitigation. And then they looked at three separate countries, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea, and they said, well, how did they perform? Well, they went. They largely went to zero. Um, and, and, and how did they do health-wise? Well, health-wise, you know, they, they really did well. How did they do economic-wise? They did fantastic. Yeah, they did better than Canada and better than many of the other countries did. I, I guess yeah. one of the things that really burns us about this as you start looking at some of this data, though, Andrew, is in the Australian and New Zealand case, for instance, in our southern hemisphere countries, uh, they, they went through this before we did. So it's, you know, there was an example for us to follow here. And, and, you know, I remember talking about some of the stories that we heard anecdotally about how they were doing this. And, and the, the, the impact that I heard from an awful lot of people was, that's draconian. We can't do that. We just can't shut everything down for three weeks, uh, like they're doing. I mean, they were basically told people, you can't walk your dog around the block. You stay in your house or else you will be ticketed and fined. And we thought, no, we, that's not North American society. Well, who's right? As, as you look at the data right now, they, they seem to get it right. And we decided the, the, the mitigation factors, to my mind, seems to be, well, we don't want to piss off too many people, so let's just take the middle road here. Well, the middle road has pissed off everybody and has done more damage uh, than you could ever have, have conceived of. You know, uh, it, the, the only way to respond to a pandemic like this, as New Zealand has demonstrated, um, and you're right, by the way, we, we you know, we have been very poor learners. Uh, I mean, here we have in Canada, we have we have half the country that went to zero. I mean, the Atlantic provinces and all the northern territories and the northern territories did that because their first nation said, look, We've dealt with influenza, we've dealt with smallpox, we've dealt with measles. We are not going to allow another virus into our territories that, that's going to take out our, our elders, all right? And they said, no way. So they shut their damn borders. They closed them down. The, the Atlantic provinces did exactly the same thing. And, and, and uh, the six most populous provinces in the country said, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. Well, you know, New Zealand did it, Australia did it, Taiwan did it, you know, Vietnam did, China did it, and uh, uh, and, and you know, and and uh, and and the results really do speak for themselves. But this whole idea that you can, you know, well, let's close down uh, with half measures, and uh, oh yeah, we we bring the virus down a little bit, and then let's open up again. Oh my God, you know, the fire is roaring again. What are we going to do? Let's call in the fire department. But you know what? We're only going to put half the fire out, and, uh, and then we're going to open up again. And I mean, this yo-yo process makes it very difficult to predict the future, makes it very difficult for anyone to plan uh, and and doesn't address the the emergency of the pandemic. So what we have have in this country is in our six populous provinces um, that we have six premiers that have totally failed in their capacity to provide um, decisive authoritative leadership. That's really what, what it comes down to. 
And by the way, this is not you know partisan politics because I mean yes, some of them are conservative, but I mean the BC Parliament obviously. The John Horgan is part of the pack, and he's an NDP. Yeah, he's a so-called he's an NDP social Democrat. And he, yep, yep, and he refers to go that way as well. Uh, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, amazingly enough, the the Maritime premiers all seem to say, "Wait a second, there's a better way to do this." And I know they they all took some heat for this uh, from did. the population initially. Uh, but you know, as we were going into our third wave here and talking about lockdowns uh, back in February. Uh, these guys were talking about relaxing. Uh, I mean, their third wave has been minimal if, 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 if compared to what we're seeing in the rest of the country. So the results are there for us to look at. Well, once you have the virus under control, which Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, New Brunswick, um, they all did. Um, they got this this virus under control. So that when we, you know when you have another spark, spot fire, or when you have the variants introduced, you know you you can immediately. Um, marshal your resources and put out those fires and um, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, the Atlantic provinces proved that, 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 that that's the best way to do it. And, in fact, that's the only way to do it. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, and, and so they're, they're kind of laughing at the rest of the country at this point in time, saying, well, wow, what took you so long? And, <clears throat> you know, and here I really would fault the... Uh, the federal government for not providing any leadership at all that, you know, <laughs> months and months ago, the federal government should have said, look, rest of Canada, wake up, look at what Atlanta Canada has achieved. It's an amazing success story in terms of COVID. It's being lauded around the world. Look at what the North has achieved. You guys pull up uh, your, your suspenders here and get going and do the same thing. But there was no leadership from the federal government, no coordination from the federal government, um, no sharing of success stories from the federal government, uh, and no emphasis on elimination. It was like, okay, you guys, you know, pick whatever approach you want and, and go for it, and, and we're here for you. And uh, no strategy, no planning, no targets. Um, you know, what a mess it has been. Which bothers me because what this does again, it seems to characterize this country as just a, a bunch of eleven different governments that you know go to the bank of the federal government when they want money, but they basically say, "Leave us alone and let us spend it the way we want. Let us do what we want." And uh, it, you have to wonder about the long-term viability of that sort of setup. But that's the way it seems to be here, because uh, you're really yeah, well, at the mercy, as you say, of local governments. Then, yeah, what you're talking about, Bill, is that the, what we're seeing is a lack of accountability and a lack of consequences, mm -hmm. and had. Had the federal government from the beginning said, you know what, guys, this is a provincial, this is this is a national emergency. All right, this pandemic is 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 unprecedented, and it is a national emergency, and so we're going to have some national standards here, and we're going to make sure that we're collecting our data in in a in a timely manner that can be shared and that can help decision making, and we're going to set some standards here for for. For the whole nation, and you know what? We're going to have some goals. We're going to achieve something here. We're, it's not good enough to yo-yo back and forth. No, okay. Let's let's as a country let's eliminate this virus. Let's let's be different. Let's but and and let's keep our borders closed. I mean, Canada really did not close its borders until February of this year. That's how pathetic our response has been. You know, and and whereas. The countries that have succeeded, like Australia and New Zealand, I mean, man, they had their borders closed in February of, of uh, 2020. So, uh, you know, th there's some very, very stark differences here. Um, and, you know, Canada needs to 
to pay attention to these success stories, not only the success stories within its own borders, but the success stories that you can find in East Asia. And I, I'm glad you brought this up about about you know the the, the ramifications of this as well, and, uh, because I, the rationalization, uh, the, as you've heard, Andrew, from governments, including the one here in Ontario, is well, look at we we can't ruin the economy, so we've got to you know take this tech, we've got to do these half measures that they see, uh, keep putting out on us. Uh, but when you look at the data from these countries that you just referenced, Australia, New Zealand, and much of East Asia, uh, their economies are much better than ours. I mean, they rebounded quicker. Than, as a matter of fact, they never even had the negative impact uh, when it came to things like restaurants and, and, and small stores and things of this nature. The impact they had there was minimal compared to what we're having, and we're not out of the woods yet, and they are. They are. You know, let, okay, let me just cite some of, some of the data here because yeah. it's, really, it's really interesting. So the, the French study uh, you know, looked at things like uh, GDP, they looked at mobility, and they looked at uh, uh, activity in restaurants and, um, and, and other economic parameters. And what they found with GDP, that the zero COVID countries, because they've closed their borders, obviously, I mean, they had a decline of about you know, 4.5% last year, compared to 11.7% for the countries that decided the best approach was to yo-yo back and forth, the mitigation countries. So huge difference in, in, in uh, GDP declines there. Um, and then they looked at mobility. So how many people were going to work? So in the zero COVID countries, there was a 15% decline in, in mobility in terms of people going to work versus a 28% um, uh, decline in the mitigation countries like uh, most of Canada. And then they looked at restaurants and, and, and people, you know, going to restaurants. A 14% decline in zero COVID countries, a 35% decline in uh, the mitigation countries. And so, you know, basically what these guys are, are saying is that, you know, if you put health first and protect your people's health, you are protecting your economy. And if you have to go for one five-week lockdown, and, you know, this idea that we're going to go in and out of lockdown three, four, five, six times in the course of a year is ridiculous. And it's ridiculous because the, the countries um, that have successfully de dealt with this virus said, no, no, if we're going to lockdown, we're going to have targets. We're going to eliminate this virus, and we're going to stamp it out, and then we can open up and 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 then then we have restored confidence to the to the economy um and 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 that confidence comes from the health of your population so this crazy idea that somehow you have to balance between health and the economy which has really uh characterized um the leaders of the six populous provinces is is total nonsense Total, total nonsense. But the medical and the economic experts, data says you yeah. will do more ruin to your economy by trying to protect your economy than if you just protected your people and got rid of this virus. Well, and the medical experts have told us that right from the get-go, from what, a year have. and a half or so ago. They've said yep. you're not going to improve the economy till you get rid of the virus, not just you know, not just lower the numbers, but get rid of it. I mean, and that's what New Zealand and Australia took to heart, and all these other countries. And by the way, uh, you know, we seem to now we've we've shifted our priority and say, well, we've got to get the vaccines out, and, and that's, that's important. We get that, uh, but the, as we saw with the study here, there was a lot less urgency in places like Australia, and New Zealand about the vaccinations. By the way, they don't have vaccine 
manufacturing there too, except for China. Uh, but there's less urgency because they had fewer cases because they knocked the thing down before the vaccine was even available to them. So yes, they want to get everybody vaccinated, but it's not as if, oh my God, this third wave is coming up. In New Zealand, right. there was no second wave. There was no third wave. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they can wait for a vaccine. They can afford to wait because yeah. they haven't got COVID burning through their population. Yeah. Uh, they, they have more options. So when you eliminate the virus, you have more options. Your economy rebounds. Your people are healthy and confident. They can plan for the future. And, and, your, and governments can plan for other emergencies and, 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 and other issues, right? Uh, whereas uh, in Canada, are, are, you know, in, in six provinces, uh, you've had governments chronically uh, dealing only with one issue and, and, and doing it really, really badly. Uh, and, and with a total failure to understand exponential growth, a total failure to understand that you, you know, as, 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 as countless, uh, really, really good public health people have said, look, there's only one way to deal with this virus. You have to act quickly. You have to get ahead of it and you have to actually overreact. And if you don't overreact, then you are going to find uh, that this virus is going to rebound and, and kick you in the ass, and 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 you're going to just have a, a, you're going to be fighting chronic wildfires for for forever, and you know, and that sadly is the path that six provinces have chosen in this country. Well, and the strategy is just so warped right from the beginning. And 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 again, we're well, hearing no it as late as yesterday. Bill. There is no, there has been no uh, well, strategy. Yeah. Good yeah. point. Good point. And, and, and you know, now they're leaning so heavily on the vaccination program and think the vaccination program, any doctor or expert epidemiologist will tell you, is not going to eradicate the virus. It's still going to be there. It's going to control some people, but it's we've still allowed it to be there. It's like swatting flies in your house and leaving the screen door open. It's yep. going to keep coming and coming. I mean, you're going to get some flies, but there's more coming in, uh, except for these countries that just said, no, we're slamming the door, but, uh, you know, and then we're going to get rid of the virus. Is it? I, I got about a minute left here. I got to ask you. You've been looking at this for years and years about international studies and how governments react or don't react in situations. The old saying that it's never too late to do the right thing. Is it too late, or can we still salvage part of this here? Well, part of the problem is that, that the, the 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 leadership in in the six provinces has has really antagonized a lot of Canadians. We're we're now begun to realize, okay, guys, you've really bungled this. And and so they are making it harder for any public health measures now to 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 happen. But I, I you know, my guess is that we're going to be dealing with variants in the fall. And my suspicion is, is that provinces that 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 do bite the bullet and get their cases down to as low as possible and tighten their borders and their provincial borders unless they want to join the Atlantic bubble, um, uh, that's still the best course of action for this country. But that would take powerful leadership. It would take leadership from, from the federal government saying, okay, we're going to change track here, all right? We're not going to be able to outrun this virus. Um, we, this is an emergency. We're going to work as a nation together. Here are the standards. Here's our goals. Here's the targets for getting COVID down to zero or to near zero within the next two months. Um, I don't know if we will see that bill, but that would certainly result in a much better outcome for the country a year from now. 
Amen to that. Andrew, such a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Andrew Nickerfork, of course, uh, award-winning author and uh, award-winning journalist as well with his perspective. And uh, that uh, French study is well worth looking at, analyzing, and digesting, too. And hopefully it should be required reading for some of the folks in uh, provincial government offices. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. To the surprise of many, the the government, the liberals, with the help of the Black Quebecois, have shut down that probe into sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. And uh, not everybody is upset about the fact the, the pro plot thing has been shut down. Well, and we'll get into the accusations back and forth about this. Amanda Conley's been covering this story from the beginning. Uh, global journalist, of course, in Ottawa, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Amanda, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us on the show again. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised by the move yesterday? I would say yes and no. Again, this, so I, I'll kind of just set the scene here. Of course, we had heard yeah. over the weekend that there had been uh, this motion put forward by the Liberals that was going to be seeking to have the committee end on April 16th, so this coming Friday. And really what we've kind of been uh, watching for was whether that would happen before or after they got to some of the kind of final key witnesses they were hoping to hear from here. Um, they got into that right off the bat yesterday morning before they even heard from the witnesses that they had uh, arranged to speak that day. And uh, it took about an hour and a half to get to a decision here. But finally, the Liberals, with the support of the Bloc Québécois, as you mentioned there, did manage to get the support to pass that motion to end the committee probe into military sexual misconduct. Now, um, again, this is certainly uh, something that we've seen happen before when there have been investigations going on at committees into a number of different scandals and, and varying affairs here. Uh, the We Charity scandal is one of them, the SNC Lavalin affair as well. We've seen this play out similarly in those committees where you launch a probe, you hear from witnesses, you uh, get kind of an understanding of, of what was happening in the matter. And then uh, there there is usually a lot of disagreement about when to actually end that and when there has been adequate questions uh, or answers provided to the questions so far. So uh, we're certainly seeing that play out now again as well. But it, it, it is a decision, of course, that comes um, in, in a very serious conversation happening here around what is uh, what is being done and, and why so little appears to have been done into the the handling of this matter. Uh, let's talk about motivation. Uh, the government's explanation, as you reported, is that, uh, well, they needed time to wrap up and do the final report and get it to the, uh, the parliament before the, the end of the summer break. Nobody's buying that, are they? I mean, I think this really depends, uh, like a lot of things in politics, uh, where, where you're looking at this from. I mean, so we certainly heard from the Liberals, as you mentioned there, that uh, it's going to take time to put this report together, that there are about uh, five sitting weeks left before the House of Commons will rise for the summer. Of course, the, the kind of shadow over all of this is that specter of an election. Is there going to be an election call uh, in, in June, in July that could see us into a, as a fall um, campaign? No one really knows, right? So we're all kind of looking at the average timing of minority governments and sort of trying to speculate here what could happen. At the same time, we're hearing from the Conservatives and the NDP who are saying, look, we need to get answers from some of those people that we've yet to hear from at the committee. And we want them called, we want them here, and we're not being allowed to ask those questions that we want answers to. We also heard from um, one prominent group of survivors, of, of uh, people who've worked in, in the Canadian Armed Forces and who have been advocating on the need to deal with sexual misconduct in the military for a very, very long time now. They were saying it's the group, uh, it's just 700. 
And they're made up of former serving members in the military who uh, have experienced or witnessed sexual misconduct during their time there. And they were saying that uh, they they want this probe to wrap up at this committee because they fear it's gotten too partisan. They think that it's distracting from the, the work that needs to be done to actually get change for survivors and so that they, they feel that that can be achieved by uh, the committee wrapping up the, the probe, doing the report. And the government, of course, has been saying all along that they're, they're kind of waiting for the, the, the recommendations from that report to chart a course forward in terms of how they're going to actually react to this. And we've really seen, um, again, very little indication so far of what their actual plan is from the government to move forward here. Uh, that was an interesting perspective and, and by the way this is all on the report of course on the global website if you want to get the whole story uh, that Amanda's been reporting on here uh, from the uh, the Just 700 group because uh, the, the, the accusation about partisan activity on these committees is, is not new of course you've been covering you know what's going on on Parliament Hill for a long time and, and that happens I guess with a, a lot of those committees depending on, on the composition of the committee and of course in a minority parliament uh, most of the members of course are going to be opposition members and, and, and that was not the first time we've heard that criticism that they're trying to fight, basically say, well, you know, who can we blame for this? And and this other group, uh, the Just 700, was saying this was supposed to be to show a way to, out of this and to stop this sort of thing from going on in the military. And you guys have lost focus. It's a it's an interesting perspective on this. Yeah. So I think I think again, we're we're um, you know when we talk about politics, um, politics is always partisan, right? That's that's sure. the very kind of nature of the beast. And so it's not surprising that we would see this. Um, being used in a lot of ways to criticize the government's handling of this, I think that there there are um, there are legitimate questions about what went on, why certain decisions were not taken, why certain decisions were taken, um, and those have certainly been asked by a lot of experts who are not partisan. The the risk that really kind of comes up, I think, in in any issue being probed before committees like this is that again, um, at, at what point does it become too partisan to to um, Chart a way to move forward, and and I think that that's what we're hearing concerns about from this particular group. Um, that's what we were hearing concerns about from the liberals. And again, the the decision or the assessment of where that line is is obviously different for the conservatives, for the NDP. Um, and right now, I think the the big question is um, if this is wrapping up, what is actually being done? We have no action. We were promised um, a independent review into the the matter of sexual misconduct in the military back in February. It's now been more than two months that we've heard no details on what that will actually look like. We have no indication right now of what the government is actually going to do to solve the problem in terms of um, are they going to create an independent reporting structure? What will that look like? Who will it report to, right? Will it report to Minister Minister Sajjan, the defense minister? That's been cited as a big problem because of his own handling of Mm -hmm. this 2008 allegation in particular. And so we have all of these big questions that are also playing out in um, as as part of this committee probe and as part of the bigger picture here, that uh, this is one part of the, the the big picture, and there are still so many things that are unanswered here. Well, and therein lies the frustration, I guess, and not just with the Just 700 group, but with so many others, uh, especially those that have come forward in this, to say, well, what are you going to do about this? And and the answer is, well, we don't know yet. Uh, and who's responsible? And, you know, who knew what and when did they know what? I mean, which is, you know, the I guess the modus operandi of most of these committees to find out uh, from the political standpoint. Uh, there didn't seem to be much of a focus here. And that's unfortunate because, as you say, uh, we haven't accomplished anything here. Uh, you know, maybe the independent inquiry is going to come forward, but there's no guarantee there is there yeah i think that really is the concern with with things like this is that you're watching you're you're watching you're waiting right and so we know with um similar i guess the only the only kind of contrast you can draw here perhaps 
would be the issue of uh, the allegations at Rideau Hall against former Governor General Julie Payette. Mm-hmm. We yeah. did see that when those first came out, it took a little while for the, the Privy Council Office and the government to actually launch an independent review into those allegations. Once they did it, of course, the ball got rolling and they very quickly found um, some pretty some pretty scathing information in that. Um, but we really haven't seen, again, any clear indication from the government on the military misconduct issue of um, are, like w- what is happening behind the scenes, right? There's There's been really no attempt to pull the curtain back and really give um, clear assurances, I think, to Canadians that this is being handled and taken seriously, apart from saying, you know, we're taking it seriously. Uh, we, we've certainly seen this government's been in power for, for six years. People want more than words. And right now, uh, we've had very little concrete indication of what to actually expect beyond those words. And that, I think, is is a big concern for Canadians going forward. Well, especially, you know, look at the, at the calendar, as you mentioned in the reporting today. Uh, you know, the summer break is coming up, you know, sooner than later. Uh, there's a possibility of an election call sometime during that break. Uh, and then what happens to all of this work? You know, it just goes off into the ether. And, we, and, and that's just adding, I think, to the frustration. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, watch for your reporting on this, of course, on Global National in the days and weeks ahead. And, of course, go to the website, Global News website, uh, and you can read Amanda's uh, report in full and get some of the, uh, the details about this. Uh, always a pleasure, Amanda, having on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, of course, journalist for Global News covering Parliament Hill and uh, the controversy about what's going on with the uh, misconduct in the Canadian military, which, again, as we say, has not been resolved, unfortunately. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, south of the border, the prosecution wrapped up their case uh, in the, uh, the death of uh, George Floyd, of course. Uh, Derek Chauvin on trial in a number of different charges uh, involved in that particular case. A very emotional day on the stand. Joining us to talk about this is a thing Rosenblum, who's CBS Radio legal analyst. Thane, thank you as always for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Any time for you, Bill. Well, I'm glad you could join us today because I, we watched the testimony yesterday, and uh, uh, his his youngest brother, George Floyd's youngest brother, of course, uh, Philonese was uh, was on the stand. Uh, a very tearful and very emotional setting, uh, I guess, to wrap up that particular trial. But uh, maybe if you could give us a, an assessment uh, on the prosecution's cases as they wrapped up, uh, and not just yesterday, of course, but but some of the experts they say. And as you told us last week, uh, the stated test, uh, purpose here, of course, was to try to deflate uh, some of the defense arguments before they even got a chance to present them. Were they effective in doing that? I think so, Bill. I mean, some of the testimony was really devastating uh, to to the defense, I thought. First of all, the witnesses were very compelling uh, and measured in their response. You know, very clear, very thorough, very methodical, right? Nobody was, you know, out of control. There's only one, uh, one of the police officers, I believe, who was contentiously arguing with the defense counsel. But other than that, they were just very, you know, forensically and scientifically solid, right? And jurors are impressed with that. Uh, And remember, their job was to do two things. The first thing is to say, nobody believes that when you have someone no longer resisting arrest on the ground uh, and handcuffed, that you need to put your knee on their throat. And that time after time after time, witness after witness after witness, people who served in the same department, in the same precinct with Chauvin, said that this goes against, it's inconsistent with police manuals. This is our police procedures would never contemplate that. If anything, we have obligations to de-escalate 
the, the matter, not to enrage the crowd by the conduct that we're using to continue to subdue uh, uh, the person, right? Because, you know, that the, the, at first, you know, the crowd was just trying to reason with the police. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, man, you know, he was just sort of there. Hey, he just, you know, it's cool, it's cool, <laughs> right? And then within five, within five minutes, when it's already not, you know, five minutes into the knee, they're screaming, you're going to kill him. And so it's as if they put Chauvin on notice, you're going to kill him, right? And that's when it got, and so that, at that point, the irony is that Chauvin and the, his three co-defendants, who are not on trial yet, but will be in August, that's when they say they got scared. And because they got scared, that's the reason for the knee. So again, the issue on, of the use of the knee uh, repeatedly was debunked. And then secondly, more importantly, the argument that, uh, that, you know, Floyd was a drug addict and he was hopped up on fentanyl and methamphetamine. It's called speedballing. The combination alone, uh, it was suggested a potential uh, overdose. And that's what gave him Hulk-like strength. He already outweighed everybody. He was a big guy. And this argument, by the way, Bill, has, has taken place many times in the United States to, for police officers. Jurors tend to be very sympathetic to police officers if, you, if they're in a high-crime neighborhood and the person they're trying to re- arrest resists and is on drugs. Drugs is the key thing. It happened in 1992 with Rodney King. It happened in, uh, in uh, 19, uh, 2016 with Michael Brown. Uh, if it's shown that the person was on drugs, the police always say we're dealing with a person with superhuman human strength. And so you had a series of doctors, medical experts, pulmonary, pulmonary experts, a toxicology report saying he did not die of an opioid uh, overdose. He was killed by asphyxiation. He just didn't have enough air to breathe. And, and the, the, the compelling testimony, of course, from the, the, the expert last week that talked about the fact that the, the knee remained there uh, for about two minutes and some odd seconds, I guess, after he was legally dead, uh, which is something uh, we talked last week you know, about, you know, in the, so during some of the opening arguments, a couple of the jurors actually fell asleep during the testimony. I, 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 the reporting and what I watched yesterday, uh, obviously, they were paying rapt attention to what was going on there. This, this was a, a very emotional time for them. Well, you know, there were two key witnesses. Yesterday was uh, Floyd's brother. Um, there are such kinds of testimonies that are allowed in uh, to basically, uh, you know, describe. It's almost like a preemptive victim's impact statement, right? You know, just to round out who the person was. Yeah, in Minnesota, um, they call that the spark of life witness. Uh, that, that's unique yeah, to that's that state, exactly, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, so, yeah, I didn't even want to give you that term of art because it's such a strange term of art. But, yeah, yeah good. I'm glad, I'm glad Canadians know that. Yeah, spark of life uh, witnesses are there it, for many reasons. But one of the things they can't do is they're not there to provide a character to say he didn't do it, right? <laughs> you know, that's not their job. But their mm-hmm. job is to play more like a victim's impact statement to humanize and to give you a sense of the person before the crime, you know, before the end of the crime. Uh, and so there were two. There was his girlfriend from last week. She was there for a secondary reason, and everybody was interested in that because this was a very interesting at- approach that the prosecutors take. 
let's preemptively tell the jury we know he's a drug addict. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why should we hide it? Let's just tell everyone before they tell everybody what we already know. The guy was, he's very large, and he was hopped up on drugs. The difference is a girlfriend's going to get up there and say, yeah, but not on crack cocaine, right? He didn't have a crack pipe. He had a neck injury, and he was, these were painkillers. And I had the same problem, she said, painkillers. And we were, we were both of us completely addicted to it. And we relapsed occasionally on the theory that nowadays everyone in every family has somebody who was once addicted to painkillers. It was a very, I thought, brilliant strategy. And I think that worked because it gave people a different sense of Michael Brown, marijuana, um, uh, uh, Rodney King, I think a PCP or something, right? It was something else. This is different. Um, but, you know, now, Bill, this is the week for the defense's, uh, this is their case, right? The prosecutors have rested at, or, you know, they're about to. And what you have now is the remainder of the week will be the defense's case, and they'll probably wrap up on Monday. Um, and so what you're going to see now from now on is a boatload of medical experts saying, you know, we have no way of knowing what he actually died of. No one could definitively say um, the, the defense yesterday raised the question that if you take fentanyl and methamphetamine news to me, Bill did know it. If you take it rectally, it's far more addictive, far more powerful. So he said any evidence that it was taken rectally. Again, the idea is to turn uh, George Floyd into Hulk. Right. Not only did he take the drugs, not only was he hopped up, but it was done rectally. And so, therefore, it would have taken an army of policemen. And even though he was down on the floor with handcuffs, he could have always gotten up. That's their argument. You know, people can can lose some consciousness and then they get straight up and then they're even more enraged. And all we were doing is trying to sit here, wait it out until reinforcements and the ambulances came. So what you're going to get this week are just a number of, of experts seeking to contradict the medical experts from last week. I will be watching, as always, and always great to get your perspective on this, thing. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well. You too, my friend. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Thane Rosenbaum, of course, CBS Radio Legal Analyst. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.